lots and lots of spoilers. Max, what are your top five movies with squirrels in the title that do include songs, but which do not include animation? Bonus points if the squirrel does not get married by the end of the movie. Go! Wait! Don't go. Okay. Stay and listen to another episode of Max Mike Movies. Oh, I've got my list already. Not too late. We're halfway through our little jaunt called Focus on John Cusack. We've seen Cusack the Lover. We've seen Cusack the Detective. And now we're kind of seeing Cusack the Lover again. Perhaps someday we'll see Cusack of the Mountain. But not today because high fidelity is the target of our scrutiny. Wow, that sounds kind of kinky. <clears throat> Working the counter on my left is the man who knows every single song that the Chipmunks ever recorded in chronological order with and without Dave Bagdasarian, music man Max Levine. Give us a number, Max. Seven. That's not what I meant. I know. <laughs> Captain. <laughs> and I, I can tell you without fail the exact length of the original Starship Enterprise, which, as you may notice, has nothing to do with music. Minute Mike Luce. Together, we will bore the crap out of you with piddling facts. Just not today, because today we got to go over your answers to our poll question. Last week, we asked you to tell us if the words based on a true story at the beginning of a film made you sit up and take notice, or if it didn't really matter at all. You gave us lots of cool information. Geneva Brunetti is back, and she has a lot to say. Quote, I don't know why, but I always roll my eyes at the Based on a True Story title card. I just have no good reason, really. It's cheesy to me. I don't know what it is, providing arguably superfluous context, a potential crutch of some kind, a way to provide exposition without storytelling. I don't know. I don't have a good reason. We credit books, comics, etc. in title cards when a story is based off a pre-existing story, and I guess it would make sense to credit a story to reality. But, uh, like, I don't know, maybe it is superfluous to me. I'd rather have it at the end of a movie than at the beginning of the movie as an additional aha-type moment as opposed to a, oh man, what you're about to see is so wild that we made a movie about it, end quote. Wow. Thanks, Geneva. <laughs> I, okay, that's our show, folks. <laughs> yeah, we're done. She actually will not be the longest respondent. <laughs> oh boy, strap in. Yep. Chrissy Becker said, quote, eh, Usually it just means as soon as it's over, I'm going to Google the true story and see how close to the truth they got, end quote. Coolness. Yeah. Thanks, Chrissy. That's reasonable. Yeah, I'd probably do the same thing. Dave! Dave! Thank you. Is here, and again, he offers, actually not again and offered, he is here again and then just offered, <laughs> quote, you try to do this live, <laughs> quote, if you want to try to get at the truth, make a documentary. I go to the movies or watch them for the fiction. Fiction involves use of lies, at least made-up facts, for the purpose of illustrating greater truths. These days, most of what I watch are historical dramas, and while I want some level of historical accuracy, the story is more important to me than the details. So, for example, if you want to tell me the Tokugawa Ieyasu... I totally butchered that name, but there you go. Mm -hmm. Tokugawa Ieyasu buried the printing press at Toshogu, which is where he is enshrined, as part of a story about freedom of the press and the threat it poses to the government... I don't really care whether it really happened. In fact, a good conspiracy theory-based story is often more fun than any attempt at reality, as long as we all know that it's supposed to be entertaining. That said, other people do seem to care. There have been a lot of there has been a lot of ink spilled about whether Tokyo Vice is a true story or not. 
The book has been fact-checked, and the TV series says inspired by the book, so is not intended to be true so much as entertaining, which it is. That said, the book was written and took place before cell phones were ubiquitous. The series is set in the late 90s, and I often find myself wondering whether there are cell phones at that time, end quote. Okay, well, that is a hell of an opening statement, Counselor. Dang. (laughs) Thanks, Dave. Court will reconvene in three weeks. (laughs) Yeah, we have to deliberate over that. Uh, Nick Hoffman is next, and he gives us, quote, This was a debate I got into with a professor in college. He stated unequivocally that you can't put reality on stage. It would inevitably be boring. I disagreed based on the truth is always stranger than fiction premise. Uh, See, Kramer versus Kramer. No, I'm just kidding. I thought it was Kramer versus Godzilla. Oh, yeah, that's right. (laughs) It was a very short film. That night, my brother and I had one hell of a blow-up that started out, as these things often do, over nothing. I immediately remembered the debate with my professor and wrote a brief one-act that night and presented it at the next class. The entirety was a word-for-word recitation of that dumb fight with my brother. Blew the class away. Professor just glared at me. My point is, based on a true story often intrigues me and entices me. Then it's up to the filmmaker. They often muck it up, but when it's done right, say in a film like Rudy, it adds to the magic. If Rudy were just another fiction, it wouldn't be as powerful because so much of what happens in that story hinges on the almost unbelievable circumstances of it, end quote. I especially appreciate the personal anecdote here, Nick. Mm. Uh, thanks tons. Interesting. And uh, yes, Max will eventually get to talk this episode. <laughs> oh, don't mind me. I'll just sit here. I usually don't. Val Coons, who continues to be my sister, posted, quote, That's actually a tough question. It really depends on the movie. Is it one of those man-lost-in-the-wilderness films? I'm going to tend to believe most of what's on screen is made up and trust it less. I'm also not going to bother watching it. Is it a really unusual true story? It might matter a little less, but I'd want to read the actual story after. If it's a famous story, I'm not going to trust it at all, because Hollywood always thinks a story as is is never good enough and has to muck with it, and I'll spend the whole movie pointing out the discrepancies. I think what I like best is when I find out after seeing the film that it was based on actual occurrences. Did you know The Natural was based on a true story? I didn't until recently, and that tickled me. Again, though, that would depend on the story and the movie, end quote. Well, can't buy that for a dollar. Thanks, Val. I have no idea what that has to do with it. I don't know why you said that. I don't know why I say anything. (laughs) Dr. Professor Rebecca Pelkey, one-time guest of our little show, and someone who teaches film theory, wrote, quote, For me, it depends on the film, but because I'm teaching horror film again in fall, that's mostly what I've been thinking about. In that genre, it can be used truthfully or not to increase the creep factor, a technical term, of a film. It works sometimes. When The Blair Witch Project first came out, a lot of the audience experience was built around belief that it happened, that it was truly a found-footage film. It was maybe the first horror film to use a broader media presence to enhance the viewer experience, too. End quote. Mm. Thanks, What's Becca. Great examples. I, it was. I remember the found film genre, at the very least... Started to become a thing after Blair Witch. Oh, no, not the found film oh. thing. The idea of using broader media to uh, perpetuate the story. Oh. I'm not sure. I'd be interested to see if that was the first. Or if it wasn't, what is? Yeah, I think it was the first popular one, at the very least. Mm. I don't remember one before that. And after that, I remember a slew of them. Yeah. And Max's favorite film, uh, Cloverfield. <laughs> yeah. Ah, yes, excellent movie. <laughs> well, that's how you know it's good, from the vomit. <laughs> that's right. Not a good movie unless you get motion sick. That's what I say, especially when it comes to rom-coms. Ben Schleiss was succinct with, quote, I used to trust that claim. 
After finding out that Fargo isn't really a true story, despite it claiming to be, this has made me very incredulous when movies make that claim. See our previous episode on Fargo. Mm. End quote. And Ben, I'm totally with you on this. Thanks. If it's not true, don't say it is. Yeah. Brian Mundo is last on the Facebook page with, quote, Usually doesn't matter to me. A movie is a movie whether it is based on real life or not. They usually change them so much it's not very close to the actual events anyways, end quote. Well, he's got a point, and as usual, Brian is not French. Thank you, Brian. Lastly, Snowy, our Canadian listener, all the way from Canada, posted this on the website. We had to translate it from Canadian. Yeah. <laughs> quote, based on a true story means this was mostly made up or at least involves wild, unresearched speculation. Some movies use inspired by true or real events, which I think is more honest. A fictionalized account of would be even better. I get it's a movie and that it has to fit a certain time frame and be coherent, so some things will have to be adjusted to make that work. The worst are when the true story something is based on isn't even a true story to begin with, end quote. Uh. It's another person who does not like to be bamboozled. Take note, Cohen Brothers. Thanks, Vince. What about you, Max? What are, does based on a true story mean anything to you one it, way or the other? It does. It's, stim- it's sort of stimulating when you see it, like based on a true story. But unfortunately, as a couple of our, our astute and well-dressed uh, readers and listeners have said... We can't see you. Yeah. <laughs> In my mind, I can. Okay. Right that, now. That's our other show, our secret podcast. Exactly. Sorry, we my secret made. podcast. Uh, it does sort of make me wary. It's like okay, based on a true story, it's probably not, or it may be, you know, the basic structure is based on it. I think it's interesting, but honestly, I tend to find it kind of misleading. So would you say that maybe it's a once-bitten-twice-shy kind yeah. of thing, like the first time you realized that based on didn't mean it actually had to adhere to much of anything, and that movie in particular didn't, that you're like, yeah, okay. Yeah, although I have to admit that with the internet... It's a lot easier to then go and see, okay, how close was this movie to the true story? Wow, not in the same ballpark. Okay. Yeah. Except for The Natural. <laughs> yeah. That was not the same ballpark. That was a totally different one that they made in Hollywood, but it wasn't the same one they played in. <gasps> Some parts. Some maybe. parts maybe made of chicken. <laughs> Sorry, Tennessee. <laughs> Duh. Okay. Um, so do you, is there a movie, just in, is there one in particular you're like, hey, this was based on a true story and I really like it for that? This written nope, out. nothing yeah. really leaps to mind. What about you? Um, so I'm going to use two recent music-based biopic based on a true story films as examples of where it, to me, it ended up not working at all and where it did end up working really well. And that is Bohemian Rhapsody versus Rocket Man. Mm. Bohemian Rhapsody presents itself as a more or less factual account of Freddie Mercury and Queen to a certain point. Mm -hmm. If you go and look (laughs) at the facts, you will find that most of the implications aren't even close. And like, oh, their last performance was at Live Aid. No, 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 no. See our episode on uh, Bohemian Rhapsody. Rocket Man, on the other hand, basically says, there was a guy named Elton John, and he had an amazing life, and he remembers some of it, and if he did, it might go something like this. And they don't even really pretend. They they pretend. The the one thing I saw recently that I did kind of like is it's a series on Netflix called Inventing Anna about the con woman, uh, Anna Delvey. Okay. And it starts off with, Based on real events, except for the parts we made up. <laughs> it's like, okay, that's honest. Yeah, I guess, it's just like Max. It's too many times I found out I believed something, like the movie Houdini, 
million. Not yeah, oh boy. Wow. And to be fair, it's I think it was people either understood that these things were more meant to be entertainment, but I think a lot of times people quote these sources yeah. as something real and it's just eh. It's a mistake to use movies as history of any kind. They're no they're, they're good as like historical supplements. They're good for like this created the atmosphere of a particular time period. This I like movies where, say, talking about our boy John Cusack, he did a movie called The Raven, which I'm told is not very good. It's about Edgar Allan Poe. He plays Poe. He looks uncannily like Edgar Allan Poe in this movie. And the setup, I think it's supposed to be Boston, 19th century. It's like, okay, I know none of these events happened, but it's a nice kind of visualization. It's a nice kind of aid to, to trying to recreate this historical context in your head. Yeah. But that's, again, that's setting and tone, not facts. Yeah. And even then, yeah. sometimes, like, the funny thing is, this is taking a little bit of a side trip, but if you look at painting, especially religious-based painting, all the way up through the Victorian eras, they would depict all of these scenes, and they made no effort to, to try and find out what people dressed like, what they looked like. Mm. Jesus kept getting wider, for example. Yeah. Um, yes, his eyes turned blue. Yeah, yeah. And these things are taken as historical artifacts, but it's like you can't trust... Like The Last Supper was painted, oh, 1,500 <laughs> years after it happened. How factual could it be? Nobody well, took notes. Well, maybe he was... Working off a photograph. Fired. Bumpy. <laughs> I can't even bring him in this week. Uh, yeah, so I, I'm with Max here. Basically, you said it too many times and it turned out not to be true, so mm. the heck with it. So, mm. But thank you so much for your answers. Very I honestly cool. didn't think this poll question was going to spark that much interest, but as Max is so fond of telling me, I was wrong. Yeah. <laughs> well, I would tell you less if you weren't. Yes, well, I did choose you as our partner. All right, anyway, uh, well, there's no way around it. We have to ask another poll question this week because, well, we, we just do. have to. We do. One of the things this week's movie is known for is its soundtrack. Mm. Besides musicals, what movie do you think has a killer soundtrack? Doesn't even have to be a good movie, mm -hmm. just one that made you want to rush out and buy the album as soon as you left the theater. But not a musical. Not a musical. Okay. Let us know. The how comes later. Mm. What comes now... Trivia. The show. Budget! 30 million. And I like to make oh. Max guess. Take a guess. Take. Mm. 45. Ooh, so close. 47. Oh. Wait, Cusack is a box office draw, isn't he? Kind of. I guess. Maybe. I mean, he is, but he, I've never thought of him as like, he's not Brad Pitt, he's not The Rock. Yeah, I, you know, I found that pretty surprising because all three of the films that we've talked about mm -hmm. so far... Popular or well thought of, yeah. generally iconic, not a lot of money, which huh. uh, maybe a reason for the last movie. We'll I don't remember High Fidelity being getting that wide a release. I thought it was mostly in like the smaller theaters, or the art theaters. I saw it in the theater, um, and it would have had to have been a big multiplex because okay. that's all I had when I was living where I was living at the time. So, okay. Yeah. Uh, speaking of not being a big box office draw, Jack Black was not one, but he was the one person both Cusack and the screenwriters had in mind for Barry, and he is kind of perfect. He really is. He <laughs> just I, It's hard to believe that part wasn't written for him. Yeah, well, yeah, it wasn't. But no. Hey, when you can't get Bob Dylan, just call the boss. Yes, <laughs> Springsteen, Springsteen was the second choice for the cameo because the Bob just wasn't available. 
It didn't hurt that Springsteen and Cusack were friends. Oh, of course they are. God. I know. I hate it when I find out cool people I like hang out together. Seriously. Yeah. Amy Mann, Michael Penn, Patton Oswalt, and John Co- Jonathan Colton all watched <laughs> Downton Abbey together, and I hate you all. <laughs> <laughs> the original book story took place in London, but the author, Nick Hornby, didn't mind that it was relocated as the tale was more about the people than the place. Mm-hmm. Sadly for Max and I, the original location for the screenplay was Boston. Oh. Yeah. Tim Robbins was coaxed into his small role here, not because of a large paycheck, the exposure, or any such thing. Between this and his role in Anchorman, the Oscar-winning actor took both parts for the wigs. He would get custom wigs made for each movie, which he kept and which he still uses for Halloween. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, that's got to be unique. I've never heard of anyone who said, I'll do the movie. Do do I get a wig? For the wig. (laughs) I'll do the movie if I can keep the wig. <laughs> what? I've heard keep the wardrobe, but all right. Okay. I mean, I'm sure he was also like, oh, I get to work with Cusack or some other yeah. cool people too, but uh, I, do I, I get a cool wig? Yeah, I'm in. I can't think of any other movie he did with Cusack besides Tapehead. There's actually a bunch of them, it turns out. Oh, really? Well, and, I'll, and we're okay. going to get to one of them, which all I right. don't even know, but... Uh, uh, Sister Joan is back. Yes, she is, and a very subtle, very subtle. Does not in any point shove her face. Her. <laughs> this is one of eight films the siblings appeared in together. Yep. This is a movie of lists, but Rob never tells us what his actual top five albums are. That being said, there are five albums on the wall of his apartment. They are "Maggot Brain" by Funkadelic, "Tonight's the Night" by Neil Young, "Wild Honey" by the Beach Boys. Goo by Sonic Youth, and Double Nickels on the Dime by The Minutemen. Ah. Yeah, I knew, I knew some of those bands. Yeah. More nepotism. Not only is Sister Joan in this film, but Dad Cusack, Dick, is here as well. He plays the minister. Uh. Yeah. Repeat Cusack trivia. A book Rob, Cusack's character is said to be reading, Love in the Time of Cholera, is a main plot point in his next romantic outing, Serendipity. Hmm. In a bit of a twist, this movie was made into a series in 2020. The character of Rob was gender-switched and played by Zoe Kravitz, daughter of Lisa Bonet, who plays Marie DeSalle in this film. Look for Jack Black and John Cusack in another music-based film, 2003's School of Rock. John Cusack is in that? I forgot. (laughs) I didn't remember that either. That's one of those films where it's like, oh, it's Jack Black and some people, I think. Because he's just, yeah. I thought Joan, I know Joan, I think, is in that. I didn't know Joan was in that. I haven't seen it in a long time. That's what it said. All right. Don't blame me. Blame IMDb. (laughs) Rob and Laura. Gosh, those names sound familiar. Might they be the Petries in disguise? (laughs) Dun, dun, dun. Okay, so that's not really trivia. There you go. (laughs) Uh, Before I get to Mr. Cusack again, do you have any trivia about this film or anything that... Mm, Trivial? Okay. I think you covered it. So now a little more about Mr. Cusack. Mm. Though he's been in 80 films and counting, he's never been nominated for an Oscar. He's been nominated for many awards, but the only two major awards he's currently taken home are a Chicago Film Critics Award for his appearance in Say Anything in 1989 Mm. and a Canadian Screen Award for his role in 2014's Maps to the Stars. But that one was made of poutine. No, it was not made of poutine. (laughs) Filled, Filled with poutine? There is no poutine in the film. All Canadian awards have to be filled with or made of poutine. I read that somewhere. Where is that pony? Pony! (laughs) Seven of his 16 award nominations were for this film, High Fidelity. Mm. Of his last 35 movies, 
15 of them were direct-to-video on-demand titles, and one was only released in China, 2015's Dragon Blade. We'll be taking a look at one of those VOD titles later. For now, we gots the plot. Rob is not good with women, really, at all. A late 30-something who owns a record shop staffed by the biggest music snobs in the world, he ekes out a living by catering to the barely-still-in-it vinyl crowd of the early 2000s. His live-in girlfriend, Laura, played by newcomer Ibn Yele, has... I know I got that wrong, but I looked! <laughs> yep. She has had enough of his selfish ways and is moving out, taking his heart with her. Rob, John Cusack, decides that he's had enough of this and decides to go on a little personal trek to try and find out why he's done so poorly with women. On the way, he meets a local performer with whom he starts to develop a relationship, only to cut it off when he realizes that it's really Laura he loves. Thing is... Laura's moved on, and all of Rob's exes just tell him things he doesn't want to hear or act on. And Laura's moved in with someone named Ian that no one can stand. Suddenly, Laura's father dies, and she asks him to the funeral, as Rob and her father always got along. Through a lot of soul-searching and walking about in the rain, something Cusack is very good at, mm. Rob finally realizes that he never really committed to Laura, and only hopes that there's still time to do so. Will the mixtape he makes for her, and just for her, music that she would like, be the beginning of something beautiful, or is Rob doomed to repeat his mistakes? The lowdown. So, Max, yeah, had you seen this when it came out? Do you usually ask that at the end? No, I. No. I <laughs> okay. Do you listen to it? No, you don't. Do you? <laughs> did you watch this when it came out? I did. Okay, so well, you're a huge Cusack fan. I mean, I am. the fifty posters here in your living room are enough to attest to that. Hey, everybody's got the John Cusack body pillow. Okay, it's not weird. I'll just leave that right here. <laughs> um, is it a film that you've come back to? I've watched it a couple of times. Yeah, it's one of those... I don't always go out of my way, but if it's on cable, I'm channel flipping, and I get to a scene, honestly, especially if it's in the record store, Yeah, I just like, oh, I got, okay, I gotta see this. <laughs> anything with the musical moron twins. <laughs> We're not twins. <laughs> yeah, that's what I, I thought of Splash, too. But uh, There was a sequel to Splash? It was, actually. Uh, oh. In fact, there were a couple. Let me guess. It was so good that neither Tom Hanks nor Daryl Hannah was in it. I don't think Tom Hanks or Daryl Hannah even went near a theater that, that it showed in. Ah. <laughs> but uh, Sign of quality with a K. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Any of the scenes with Jack Black and whoever the guy is who plays Dick. I'm, I, so, I'm sorry, <laughs> dude. No, we don't know who you are. <laughs> I don't either. I should have looked it up. It was kind of my job, but I didn't. Uh. Um what about that particular setting gets to you? It's so believable. <laughs> it's so not only believable, but uh, nostalgic. It reminds me, and I'm stealing this away from you, hey! it reminds me of where you used to work, <laughs> except yeah. instead of records, it was comic books. Yeah. But that's an incredibly minor difference because, yes, you had the smug, annoying people who worked there, not you, <laughs> but some of the others who were very much like, Somebody comes in and says, Hi, I want this comic book. No, you don't. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah, I, I do. No, no, you don't. I'm telling you, you don't want it. It sucks. Get out. You're, you're really going to buy the champions. Okay, well, that's if you have to. Uh, the Invaders. Okay, so you just loved them to bring back World War II in ways that don't. Okay, I'm sorry. That's, that's very nerdy. Those are, those are probably yeah. Marvel teams we will not see on the big screen anytime soon. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> If they think even five people will see it, they'll do something. I, I admit that this and um, Empire Records here, previous episode of Empire Records, 
do in fact remind me very much of my having worked at uh, Million Year Picnic, the New England's greatest comic book store and oldest comic book store, still in business, um, because of that fact. Mm-hmm. Um, it feels like any given little mom and pop that focuses on a specific thing. Not mom and pop, though. That has a very specific connotation. The idea yeah. of family run. You know, oh, dear, here, we'll have some apple pie while you're looking at the hardware. Put, this, your, put your knee up on the pickle barrel. <laughs> I play some checkers. Yep. This is one of those small indie shops. Yeah. It's one of those shops that is run by people who genuinely love the product but hate everyone who isn't like them exactly <laughs> and hate most of their customers. And quite honestly, often each other. Yes. <laughs> and probably themselves. The relationship between the three of them is really, is the most fun. I think it's the most interesting relationship in the movie, and certainly, especially between Barry and Dick. Barry is Jack Black, who Uh. are, I think they're such a a fascinating couple. I love the two of them because they're both unbelievably annoying in completely opposite ways. Yeah. Dick is one of those passive, not quite all there, not stupid, but socially inept, he probably now they'd be diagnosing him on the autism spectrum. Or just awkward. It's just very, very awkward, and but very kind of retiring, but not entirely. He will stand up for himself. And Barry is just loud, crude, <laughs> vulgar, incredibly entertaining, Yeah, but just you want to smack him every time he talks. I like there's a couple of times that Rob takes him to task and he's like, no, Dick, you're wrong. And Rob will come in and go, actually, he is right. It's like, well, whatever. So he's yeah. obviously, half of what he says is bluster and he gets away with it because he's just that loud. And actually, my note for him was, walking in like a hurricane, <laughs> Jack Black. And I also, sometimes he surprises you. Yeah. When you know, Dick actually finds a kind of soulmate in, played by Sarah Gilbert, of uh, the Big Bang Theory and Roseanne, and it named Anna Moss. Which, by the way, did you look up how her name is spelled? No. A N A U G H. <sighs> yeah, I I don't know, even know if that's a word, but that's how you that's how the movie spells Anna. Okay. And he's going out to meet her, and Barry works worms it out of him what he's going to do, and while he's a little abu- insulting. He's oddly supportive, too. It's like, Dick, that's great. Yeah, smoke that. It's yeah. Like, of course, he does it in the most crude and offensive way. Yeah. But he's not like, after initially, what, did you meet her at, like, the home for mental deficiency or a home for the blind? Yeah, yeah. But he actually, at the end, is like, good for you. All right. Yeah, he actually does remind me of somebody I want <laughs> Specifically, the person who, at the time, I said was the most sarcastic person I'd ever worked with, and then somebody came after I left that was worse than him wow. and put him in his place, and it was awesome. Ooh. And you're, I know you're not listening, so I'm not going to worry about this person that I'm talking about. <laughs> uh, and the weird thing is, as much as that person was snide and occasionally kind of abusive, I still like them, and I don't know why. People would ask me, it's like, why do you like this person? It's like, I don't know. There's just something I like about them. But yes, they're incredibly hard to work with. Um, so that's the thing. With both of them, with both Dick and Barry, you can sort of see how you would like them 
And also how you would not want to spend more than 15 seconds with them. Well, I wrote, we, are, we hate and are fascinated by Barry. Yeah. Because yeah. he knows his stuff. You, yeah. Well, or sometimes he's just very loud and gets it screws up the facts. And but. oddly enough, you know, you find he talks about how he's a musician and he can sing. And if you now, when I saw this, I didn't know who Jack Black was. Nobody did. So I didn't know what Tenacious D was. No, and that was before this movie. Yeah, I didn't know he could actually sing. Well, it's a nice little surprise yeah. in the, the film. We have the same reaction that Rob does, which is like, oh, here he comes. Huh? Oh, yeah. I love oh. Rob's reaction because he's absolutely thunderstruck. Yeah, that Barry actually can follow through and actually can do something he said he could do. Well, there you go. And he says, I think, when they first... And just to get this out of the way, uh, John Cusack's character, Rob, uh, breaks the fourth wall constantly. Oh, that's, yeah. that's sort of a thing of the film, which could easily not work, but, but I think does. actually works really well. I think it does. Part and of it is, I think, the way it's Cusack. Part of it is the way it's written, and part of it is the way it's staged. It's not like he stops, turns, faces the camera... It's just he's walking or he's doing something, and he just turns and looks at the camera while he's doing it. And he tells us about, because the whole thing is supposed to be about his life, which, you know, it is. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I love his introduction to them, because first Dick walks in, and he's talking about this mixtape he's made for Rob. And we can see that Rob really doesn't want to listen to this music and doesn't want to listen to Dick talk about this music. But he knows that Dick's a nice guy, so he's trying to be as patient as he can, which is not very. Yeah. And then... <laughs> The the doors blow open, the cyclone comes in, and there's Jack Black's, and he just sits there and he goes, I can't fire them. I hired them to work three days a week, and they just kept coming in every day, and that was four years ago. (laughs) (laughs) And more likely than not, he only pays them for three days, because that shop doesn't make any money. Um, Clearly. Although, that's one of the things that I like about this film, is it was shot in in 2000, and except for the lack of cell phones... Mm -hmm. It could be today because yeah. vinyl is a thing again. It and is. That store would do great. It would do very well. <laughs> in fact, it probably is still selling the same records it's selling in this movie. Mm. <laughs> it's even the way they introduce themselves musically. Yeah. I mean, Dick puts on a Bell and Sebastian tape, right? Which is kind of mopey rock <laughs> and you know, lousy, it, wowsy, woo woo, yeah. <laughs> schlep rock, if you will. <laughs> yep, yeah, we've got our new musical format right here: schlep rock. <laughs> Okay, that's a deeper. Yeah. Uh, yeah, old Flintstones cartoon. Uh, uh, technically, Pebbles and Bambi. Right, right. <laughs> I but hate the, to correct you on something like that. No, no. I feel it was part of the Flintstones oeuvre. <laughs> the Flintstone verse. Yeah. But uh, then, you know, Jack Black tosses that tape away and shoves in Walking on Sunshine yeah. and turns the volume up as loud as he can. It's like... Yeah, this, I think, sums up the two characters pretty well. Yeah. But these, they are not the, the focus of the movie. No, the focus, focus is, is really Rob and his romantic life and his uh, relationship with Laura, which right. has just ended yep. and has really destroyed him. And he's trying to figure out why. And he's trying to figure out, why do all these women leave me? Well, so <laughs> my first notes about Rob is, if you have a list for your top five breakups... Perhaps you're the problem. Yeah, yeah. And we go through, he actually lists them all, and we get to see them. Mm. And the first one, they got some kid to play John Cusack. Fairly convincing. Yeah. He looked like somebody who could grow up. He into good young Maybe he's a lesser Cusack. <laughs> um, and then the next one, it's obviously supposed to be in high school. And I thought they aged him down really well. I thought John Cusack looked exactly like some yep. 80s high school nerd. Yeah. Um, 
And then we go through his list of people, and he recounts them to us the way he remembers. And that's, it's interesting because we also see it the way it happened. He tells us what happened, but we see what happened, and we can sort of sit there and go, yeah, you were a dick. Uh, not that dick, a yeah. different dick. And that's what it sort of more or less comes down to. And then he decides after the many times that Laura has left the apartment because yeah. she keeps coming back, that, you know, I should probably call them all up and, and talk to them because that's a that's a really good idea and it never <laughs> goes badly. And he is encouraged to do this by Bruce Springsteen. Who... <laughs> Which is just weird. Like an archangel yeah. descends he, out of nowhere. It's like, oh, what would the boss do? And suddenly, the boss. Yeah, there he is. Bruce <laughs> just sitting there. He's not. We don't get the feeling he's supposed to be in the same room. He's just playing his guitar and going, you should call them, man. You're, yeah. <laughs> it's a form of closure. Some yeah. emotional growth stuff there. Yeah. And you're getting, you know, so, uh, all sorts of cool advice from the boss. So you might as well take it, I guess. Yeah, but of course he's doing it all wrong. The I whole, don't like... The whole reason he's doing it, it's not about self-exploration. It's not about uh, uh, trying to grow as a person or address his own emotional inadequacies, of which he has many. It's, I want to know why all, the, why all these women are mean to me. Well, I, wa- I want to say he's also looking in a way for a little bit of absolution. Yeah, that, he wants to know it's not his fault. It is. Ooh, and it's spoiled. <laughs> Well, except, yeah, he does get, he break, in one of them, it's like, oh, I broke up with her, I forgot. And it's like, that's the way we see it, and he he basically isn't getting any, because she doesn't want, she's 16, she's Mm -hmm. not ready for sex, and he decides being this sex-crazed 16-year-old kid that's... Or in other words, a 16-year-old kid. (laughs) That, well, if I'm not getting any, there's no point of this. And actually, the line he uses is, so what's the use? A line which will come back to haunt him. Yeah. And he walks out on her, and we see it, and then later, but it's obvious that it doesn't occur to him. He thinks she's rejected him because he she won't let him um, paw her up and down. <sighs> we really, really need to teach people things. Not us, but somebody. Somebody, somebody needs somebody to teach people things. Good at it. Yeah. Especially yeah. men. Young men need to be taught. Anyway, so he goes back. Here, here's my question, though. Mm. Do you honestly think that's a good idea? At all? No. No. The way he does it, especially, he he doesn't care about them. He's not interested in finding out. There's no empathy in it. There's no, no, like, I want to find out what happened with us. It's like, I want to find out what's wrong with you. (laughs) Why did you, what was wrong with you that you dumped me? Yeah. And it just doesn't occur to him that there might be another source of the Mm. problem, which is Rob, and which, unfortunately, as an audience, we are aware of the entire film, yeah. And we do have to wait for him to get to that point. As much as he does. It, well, you know, we'll get to that towards the end, but yeah. Uh, let's go. We, we like to do this a lot of times. Let's talk about the acting. Obviously, sure. Cusack, he's the whole point of this little series. This, to me, is vintage Cusack. Yeah. This mm-hmm. is the little quips, The in this case, looking at the camera, but the confidence, it's not necessarily earned. His mouth tends to hang open a little. It's a Cusack thing. Yeah. But this... To me, is like if I think of John Cusack, I think of this. What did you think? I usually think of say anything when I think of Cusack. I thought this. What is impressive to me about this is he really likes to play likable characters. Most a lot of the characters that he plays, you're just like, oh yeah, he's he's just an ordinary guy. Rob is more complicated and a lot less likable than he usually is, but very believable. Yeah, you you really believe there is someone, you know, apart from. The supernatural eloquence that every movie character has. This guy's really believable. Yeah. 
And he is both like, yeah, he might be fun to hang out with. And also, I want to punch him many times. <laughs> yeah. And it's pretty obvious to us, at least what part of the problem is. The thing that's not obvious to me is, what does she see in him? I keep wondering why Laura is kind of a mystery. In yeah. This. And again, we're focused more on Rob. But she's confusing. I yeah. don't get, why does she keep coming back? What is it about him? That brings her back to him because we don't, excuse me, I don't see it. No. And one of the things is we learn that's not patently obvious is that Laura's actually become rather successful. Mm. Whatever job she does, we don't know what she does. She works in some office. She's a lawyer. Well, she works in a law office. But she is a lawyer. She started out uh, working as legal aid. We find that out. He tells us that when uh, he talks about how they met. See, I never heard that she was actually a lawyer, yeah. just that she worked in a law office. Oh, so she, she could be a, a uh, what do they call those? A things? clerk. She could be yeah, a lot, paralegal. A lot of paralegal, things. that's what I want. But I think she's That means that she a can lawyer. jump out of planes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, and at one point, she is driving a Saab, and I don't know if it's hers or the family's, but you see where the way she's dressed and stuff, and she's at work, it's like she's pulling, and she actually does say, I wanted to put my life together, and mm-hmm. you weren't helping. That was one of the reasons she left. So she's successful. I would say this is me talking as not really being able to gauge this, but I'd say she's pretty attractive. She's, she's obviously very attractive. She's very smart, mm-hmm. um, which leads us to ask why she's <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and I, I do like me some Cusack, but we're not seeing the best of this character, I guess. There must be something missing. I hope so. Otherwise, she, or she just has terrible taste in men. This happens. I mean, look who she goes to. <laughs> Poor Tim Robbins. The, the, the re, oh, and I gotta say, talking about the acting, Tim Robbins. <laughs> I I still think this and Mystic River are two of his greatest wow. roles. Wow, what a disparity there! But in this, he in two lines. He establishes, like, you know everything there is to know about Ian Raymond, and you hate him. Yeah. It's like, he's he's not a bad person, but you hate him. He's loathsome. Yeah. He's, he's moist. He's, there is, yeah, he is the human embodiment of the word moist. Yeah. He's, put, you know, hey, resolving conflict is my job. <laughs> like, ah! My uh, one note, it was just, Ian, wow. <laughs> <laughs> An odd scene where he comes and confronts Rob <laughs> in that incredibly passive-aggressive way yeah. in, in the record store. And Rob goes through these scenarios in his head. And initially, it's not clear that after, until the first one's over. You don't know what's happening. But yeah. The first one, he imagines just telling him off and setting him. The second one, he imagines going into a fury and the Dick and Barry have to hold him back. And then the third one, it's like a Quentin Tarantino scene <laughs> where they literally beat Ian to death and Dick hits him with an air conditioner. <laughs> yeah, that particular bit where it gets hyper-violent, how did that work for you? I thought it made sense because it's constant escalation of the fantasy in his head. I, it's so much anger. I, I was, I'm on the fence because it's so opposite. And admittedly, it's played for laughs. I mean, when Dick, of all people, <laughs> yanks the air conditioner out of the wall yeah. and starts over his head, starts beating uh, Ian, Ian with it. I, it's obviously not meant to be taken seriously, but the violence is really in your face. And I wondered if that tone really mixed with the rest of the movie or not. A lot of the things, um, there's a lot of tonal shifts in this movie. It goes from comedy to pathos pretty quickly. I don't find any of it. That's the only part for me that the tone really yeah. shifted. There are a lot more serious parts, but 
the serious parts to me always have a sort of edge of dark comedy because Rob just doesn't get it. And he's continuously embarrassing himself in front of the audience. Yeah. It's like, do you, do you get what I mean? Or all of a sudden they're going, we're with the women. Yeah. <laughs> Especially, I want to bring her in real quick, mm-hmm. because she is a delight. Not that this is a surprise. Mm-hmm. Catherine Zeta-Jones oh. is one of his ex-girlfriends. And they play it, and I think they actually picked her perfectly for this. He says, she is out of my league. You need to bat in your same league, and she's... Up and, there, and I'm not. Yeah, and we're and, sitting there in the audience going, yep. yeah, you're not wrong. You're not wrong. She is way too much for you. And she's, when we first see her, when he's recounting yeah. the relationship, she's fun. Oh. She's just, I love that scene where she's going, walking up the stairs to her apartment, and she's just taking off bits of clothes because she's like, I'm in the mood now, and you're going to be excited, and I'm going to have you exactly where I And he's like, I'll bring the groceries up, Miss Jones. Yeah. Um, she's, she's, a, she's great, and... I actually also really like the point where he comes back and wants to find out what happened, mm-hmm. which she wants no part of, yeah. because she's too cool for school, and she mostly is. She's the kind, kind of, of person where she walks in the room, and the, the first view of her is how most people see her. She has something interesting to say. She's thinking on the levels way above me. She's attractive. She's in control. She's charismatic. And when he goes back to see her, he realizes she's terrible. Yeah. She doesn't actually listen to anybody She's not around a nice her. Person. She is, but I, we, I'm sure we've both known people like that. These people who are, they could be the center of attention, and you, you just, you feel lucky to be in their presence. Yep. And then it starts to sink in. Why is this lucky? Actually, this person is mean, or this person doesn't pay attention, or shallow. Yeah. But you're just. She's literally, by the literal definition of the word, dazzling. Yeah. And she is, mm-hmm. and it's not. Just in a sexual manner. And the thing is, to me anyway, and again, I may not be the best judge, whenever she's being portrayed in a sexual way, she is utterly in control of what's going on. She's not being objectified. No. like, this is her power and... If you see her like this, it's because she wants you to see her like that. Um, And she's great. And I'm afraid you know some of the other girlfriends' actors better. Mm -hmm. Because Sarah was played by... Lily. Uh, Sorry, that was uh, played by Lily Taylor. Lily Taylor. Who we saw as his best friend in Say Anything. And... I liked her in that, and she's only briefly in this, and she's not playing a cool character, but no. she does a great job at she's it. She's playing basically a broken character. Yeah. She's playing someone who is very emotionally hurt and very fragile. And Lily Taylor, I've seen her do both, and she can pull that off really well. Of the girlfriend characters, she reminded me, like, I don't know if I could point to a specific person I know that was like that, but it's like, oh, there have been people, especially in college, yeah. that I met that were like that and probably still are. Yeah. So she does a great job. Um, the guy plays Dick. Again, don't know him. I should have his name. Yeah. I Unfortunately, I only have one window open right now. Sorry, folks. Uh, he does a great job. He's perfect as a character. I've known plenty of people like him. Yeah. And, uh, of course, we talked about Jack Black. And John Cusack. So uh, there's, however, uh, somebody else who, quite honestly, silkily slides into this film, and you're like, wow, okay, I'd go watch her. And, of course, this is not really a big surprise. It's Lisa Bonet. Oh, yeah. And she's she plays a, a singer-songwriter performer named uh, DeSalle, uh, Marie DeSalle. Mm-hmm. And she is like, she really is like Silk. At least I thought she was. She's just so smooth and so, again, she, you're watching her on stage, and it's like, yeah, I would totally watch her on stage if I was in a club. It's like, who's that? She really is, it's hard to take your eyes off her, which is interesting because I've never found Lisa Bonet to be a particularly great actor. 
I see. I know she was in the Cosby Show, and I never really watched that much. And besides, which the real star of that show, as everyone knows, was the sweater. Uh, <laughs> but I think she does a great job. Sadly, we don't get that much of her. No, um, but I kind of like that. That's sort of the, the the character she is. She's almost supernatural, and that she sort of floats in, interacts, and disappears. Well, and later on, when Rob finally, spoiler, finally starts to figure out what's going on, he talks about the other women he's been with as fantasies. Mm -hmm. And I would say of all the ones we see, the ones that embody fantasy the most are Charlie, played by Catherine Zeta-Jones, and uh, Marie DeSalle, played by Lisa Bonet, because he's like, look, I don't see the regular problems. I don't see all the, the bad stuff. I just see the silky lingerie and I see the fantasy. And that those two people are. And the thing, again, with Catherine Zeta-Jones is she dumps him when she basically, she got bored. Yeah. He's just like, eh, he's not going to be what I want. I'm going to choose some other guy. Why did you pick me over? Why did you pick Mark over me? He's eh, more glamorous. Yeah. And it's, it's just easier. And it's, I, to be fair, I don't know anything about John Cusack as a person. Mm. Perhaps he and Catherine Zeta-Jones could sit there and discuss particle physics for hours. I don't know. Right. But in this movie, you could just, the two of them, it's like, nope, yeah. not going to work. <laughs> it really wouldn't. But again, that's, they're both very t- good actors. Yeah. But, uh, but by the way, uh, Dick was played by a guy named Todd Luiso. Ah! Yeah, I've never heard of him either. The Todd. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I don't, yeah, too bad. I think he does a great job. I don't know if that's like, maybe that's how he really is, but mm-hmm. I think he did a great job. It's very peculiar with, uh, <clears throat> I'm going to get back to Rob and Laura a bit. Yeah. It's uh, their relationship is so confusing. So much of it seems very adversarial. They're just not happy. But there's that scene where she's come over to get her stuff, and she's going through his journal or his papers or something, and finds his list of top five dream jobs. Right. That whole scene is actually very sweet. It is. And she, but the thing is, she's being very supportive of him. She's yeah. propping him up. She's, you know, telling him, "Look, you, what you had, your life now isn't this, isn't so bad. This this your current job should be on your list." Yeah. And again, he does nothing, and then we get. Her father dies. Right. And uh, at the funeral, basically, or after the funeral, is when they get back together. Because <laughs> that that line, it's, I'm just too tired not to be with you. Like, well, yay? Well, now here's the thing. I didn't think about this till you just mentioned that. She spends the entire film coming back to the apartment to get things that she's left. Yeah. She could at some point have borrowed a car. I'm sure Ian has means of some sort, um, mm-hmm. whether they're mental projection or whatever the heck he does. Right. Um, he, he attacks the area, he attaches himself to the multiverse. Because uh, I, I have a feeling that Doctor Strange is going to come across Ian at some point. Well, I hope he hits him with the flames of the Faltine. There, there you go, or the winds of Watum. Yeah. Crimson Bands of Sidorak, anyone? <laughs> yeah, okay. Uh, but I have this feeling that instead of just pulling herself out the way she could and really making a clean cut. She, we don't know what it is, but she still finds something about being with... Maybe he's just really comfortable to be with. Maybe. And when he finally describes what he likes about her, he's walking along a bridge and he's just saying, these are the top five, because he's always doing top yeah. five things. These are the top five things that I really like about Laura. And he goes about them and they're not the usual, she's got great hooters or anything like that. He's talk- I love her smell. And he loves the way she laughs. Her whole body just—it's all the things that you're supposed and to look at. She has character, and I like the way he describes what it means to have character. Yeah, and 
It's obvious. It, the problem, I think, is that, and we don't really discuss this in the film, we, meaning me and Max, yeah. uh, is that Rob is getting to a point. He's probably headed towards 40. That's yeah. what we're going to guess. Mm-hmm. And he hasn't done anything with his life. Well, now, he has a business. That's, but that's the way he sees it. I haven't done, he hasn't, and that's the way, in a way, she's seen it. It's like, except she's also trying to point out, it's like, well, you've done something, but what are you going to do next? And that's something that Rob doesn't do. He doesn't plan. Yeah. He doesn't commit to anything. He doesn't have a direction. And she comes in, and she first points out, it's like, well, you got a record store, and you actually seem to like the record store, Dick and Barry aside. Um, although, when Dick and Barry are on, there's one scene later on where it's, this, I'm guessing it's a weekend, and there's actually mm-hmm. customers in the store, and both of them, this is where Dick meets Anna, Yeah. but they're both of them are using their superpowers for good <laughs> instead of evil. That's and, right. Yep, that's right. They're helping people musically. or And they're taking all of their knowledge. So Dick is talking about, oh, did you know the Green Bay's influences are these two bands? And the first one they both know, which instantly is like, oh, I, I like her. She knows an influence for Green Bay. Yeah. And the second is this other band that no one's ever heard of. Yep, Stiff Little Fingers. Yeah, which is not a band that nobody's ever heard of, but... And he puts it on, and she's interested. He's like, but he's helping her. Not it's, He doesn't do it, I think, initially because he's hoping to go out with her. He's doing it because he's found somebody who likes music, yeah. and he wants to share something that they may not have met, re- they, recognized. They but. do all have this weird bond. I mean, part of it is being music snobs. Yeah. But like when they're watching Marie DeSalle for the first time, and she's doing a Peter Frampton number, and, <laughs> and Rob is like, I used to hate this song. And in unison, they both go, yeah. He says, now I kind of like it. Yeah. <laughs> and that little exchange where, what is it? Uh, Barry says, I want to date a musician. Yeah. And Rob's like, I want to live with a musician. And they each start going around, in effect, all three of them talking about what they love about being involved with the musician. And they're in this perfect sync zone. <laughs> it's kind of unnerving. Because yeah. we never see that in the rest of the movie. But you know it's there. Yeah. It's the only way the three of them could work together without killing each other. It's kind of what how this show works. <laughs> Max constantly wants to kill me for a good reason. And <laughs> it's I only want, a, I don't want to kill you. I just want I just want want to bash your brains in. Yeah. Brash bash them the F. In. Yes, don't say the F word because I can't beep it out. Um, and we've again working at the comic book store. There were people like this. People that I can't. I won't name the person, the most sarcastic person in the world. And there were plenty of days where that person would take some small tidbit that you told them about your personal life and use it against you with a horrible comment. And then there were days where they would talk to you about cartooning in a way that their passion would come out, and you would learn something, and it would be cool. And so it, this is scenes like this that let you go, okay, I don't hate, hate Barry and, and Dick, but could you be more like this more often and not like so much like that? Could, I could see it being... Could you be less like you. that? <laughs> you just pointed to all of me. <laughs> yeah, be yeah. less like that. I could see, like, I understand why people would want to come into a store and maybe go run, tap into this knowledge. I can't understand spending eight hours a day with them. It's not easy, mm-hmm. um, but that's one of some of the best times of my life. My yeah. best job ever was working at that comic store. It would never have made me much money, but I was mostly pretty happy there. And you know, um, real quick, I want to say that, uh, and I I misremembered this when Rob finally seems to start looking mm-hmm. at things properly and getting his their their identities 
more or less figured out. The movie does something that makes me just cringe. Ah, uh, yes. His little dalliance, or near that, dalliance. Yeah, it's this odd sort of, he's back with Laura, she's home, he's happy. He meets this other girl. And I say girl because she comes off like a girl who work, who's an actual music critic who right. works for the, the local reader. And who remembers him as a DJ and yeah. liked him then. Yeah, and he's starting to put together a mixtape for her, mm-hmm. which he tells Laura. Yes. He's not hiding it. And, uh, and I think he catches himself. He's like, what am I doing? Yeah. And there's actually a really fun scene with where Barry actually does something nice because she walks into the store and she's talking to Rob over the counter. Oh, yeah. And he's like, yeah, I could make you a mixtape or something. And then the phone rings and Barry suddenly goes, Rob, phone. And he's like, yeah, could you, put, uh, could you take a message? It's your girlfriend. <laughs> Yeah, it's like, and Rob's like, uh, yeah, yeah, he basically should. just leaned over and slapped Rob across the face. And honestly, good for Barry. Yeah, so because Rob needed a good whack upside the head at that point, because he's falling back into his old patterns. But at least with Barry's help, I think he catches himself. Well, here's my question before we get to the wrap yeah. up: Do you think Rob does actually redeem himself in the end? Entirely, no, no. I think he starts to. I don't think we. it's a complete redemption arc. No. The two scenes that really help, and they're the last two scenes, that really help make this film, to me, end with hope. And I won't say, like Max has just pointed out, that it is a definite thing, but with hope, mm. are when he proposes, yeah. which initially goes badly, yeah, she, as it should. She laughs in his face. Yeah. And... The bit about him making the mixtape. Yeah. Where he's like, no, I'm going to make this for her. Music she would like. Even though it's obvious music that she that he doesn't like. Mm-hmm. He's like, no, I'm making this for her. And he has these rules for making a mixtape. Because they have yeah, to be this way yeah. and that way. And he's very particular. But you know he's going to take that kind of care to make something just for Laura. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've mostly gone through my notes. Do you want to get to that thing that we do that we do so well? Oh, uh, yeah. The surprise. <laughs> <laughs> Roundup. So, Max. Yes. You'd seen this I when have. it came out. Do you remember if you liked it when it came out? I did like it when it came out. And then you said you've seen it occasionally when it's yep, in the background. I've seen it a few times. But now, yeah. it's years later. It's 22 it years later. Oh, Lord. Now, mm. you have a different perspective. And yeah. now, your mind has changed and learned and experienced and soaked up things. And <laughs> Max, can you wake up? Was I in a coma again? Yeah. No. Oh, good. <laughs> I was just speaking. Which, toast, please. Just like Mary Hart, the <laughs> tones of my voice tend to put you into a coma. <laughs> Although with her, it was in fact into uh, yeah, epileptic seizure. Uh, yes. yes. Well, um, so Max, what did you think of High Fidelity? Yeah, I don't like this modern fancy music the kids are playing. I think it's the devil's music. Yeah. All their green days and belling <laughs> Sebastians and so forth. <laughs> uh, it does make me feel a trifle old to watch it, but... Uh, I, I still like it. Yeah. I, I still absolutely, especially as you say, it's no it's no longer, I'd say if I had watched this three years ago, it's like, oh, that's so sad. Of course, there's no record store anymore. <laughs> and now it's like, oh my God, that guy would be raking it in. Yeah. I don't know about raking it in, but it's... He'd be doing fine. Probably better than he was in 2000. Yeah. Uh, in 2000, yeah, because we had by now stopped putting stuff out on vinyl, so it's all collectible. Mm-hmm. But uh, for the most part, um, yeah. So yeah, well, I, I, st- I like it. I think the characters, the acting is so well done. The characters are all very believable. The difficulty is they because they're believable, because they seem real, they aren't all 
that likable or they aren't perfectly understandable or perfectly adorable or anything. I think especially when it comes to Dick and Barry, they're the mm. kind of friends you have that there's a sort of an unseen counter ticking. And every time yeah. you interact with them, it ticks over one more time until it gets to a point you're like, I've had enough, and yeah. you walk away. Yeah, Th- those people have kind of an expiration date on them <laughs> because eventually you hit a level of toxicity you can't take anymore. Yeah. Rob, I, you say the ending is hopeful. I agree. I think it's hopeful, but it's also kind of frustrating because... We don't know if he's going to be all right, if he's going to continue growing and becoming but basically the kind of person that Laura probably deserves. Definitely. Well, from what we've seen, to yeah. be fair, because we see not that much of her. What we see seems to be pretty positive. Mm-hmm. I think she seems like a very capable and pretty cool person, but I don't actually know what she likes. Yeah, except for him. Except for him. I don't um, think we even know much about her musical taste, which is what he talks about all the time. Simon and Garfunkel. I'm, I'm sorry, gonna... Art Garfunkel, not Simon and Garfunkel. Right. And I forget the other person. Oh, Marvin Gaye. Marvin Gaye. So you can't like these two people. It's like, well, one of them was shot by his father, and the other was it's like, okay. Yeah, yeah so the other one was Art Garfunkel. But, <laughs> but I, I do like that he's declared that, like, Let's Get It On is their song, and yeah. that's the song that uh, Jack Black's band... Initially, Sonic Death Monkey, then possibly Catherine Tur- Kathleen Turner Overdrive. <laughs> but at the moment, it was what Barry Jive and the Uptown Five. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's the song they do. That's a nice touch. That's also a song that's really easy to do badly or really, really cheesily. Do it the next time you're doing karaoke. <laughs> what about you? What, now, you, you saw it when it came out. Yes, I did. What did you think of it when it came out? I remember liking it. I like, this is that John Cusack character. When I think of John Cusack, I think of this. Okay. Not necessarily just this film, but this performance. Um, and I like that confident but troubled and quipping character. Mm-hmm. I like John Cusack. I've liked him in most of his films. And this, to me, is perhaps my favorite of this rom-com type of role that he plays. Um, Jack Black is he he thankfully doesn't take over the film, but pretty much every scene he's in, you're looking at him. Yeah, he's a real scene stealer. Um, I like I, I makes makes me feel like this store I worked in. So of course I like that. I have gotten back into vinyl, and that store looks exactly now the way it could now, uh, even though it was 20 years ago in Chicago. It could be now, and it would look exactly the same and do just as well, probably better. Um, Catherine Zeta-Jones is a heck of a lot of fun. The other, I'm sorry, what is her name? Her name is Lily, Lily Taylor. Lily Taylor is barely there, but you instantly know who she is. Yeah. Um, the film and the, I'm guessing the original book, which I have not read, were probably a very male perspective. And I think if anything, the film does suffer a little from not having more of a female perspective on what's going on. And mm-hmm. I say that only because we don't know why she's with Rob. Yeah, but again, that's not the point of the movie. It's no. A very, it is a guy's movie. It's a movie about a guy. Yeah. And very much like, don't be a guy, be a man. He's a yeah. guy. The one thing I will say about Laura, though, is um, I think she cuts her own hair. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but I like this film a lot. Um, I would recommend it. I think it, again, with, the only thing it's really missing that would make it that the styles are not entirely out of place. Although, one thing I noticed I thought was odd, and I can't tell if it was done on purpose or not, is none of John Cusack's shirts fit. Yeah, you said they were all really baggy on him. Yeah, I wonder if they're trying to make him look like, he, like it's a way of visually saying, I haven't gotten out of college yet. I haven't gotten out of high school. I'm not fully grown yet. I haven't matured. I was wondering if it had something to do with it. At one point he talks about 
after one of the breakups, I think it was with Charlie, he says, I lost it, I lost everything, I lost 15 pounds. I wonder if the idea is when he has a breakup, he doesn't eat. Oh, I don't know. But when one of the things is, well, and we didn't even talk about this, but one of the things he does is there's two kids who shoplift from, yeah. shoplift Exactly what I thought of Empire Records. Yeah. And it turns out that they have a band um, called uh, Kinky, Kinky Wizards. Wizards. And a bad name. they make a, a demo tape that somehow Jack Black's character gets a hold of, yeah. and it's ah, it's really good. <laughs> and so he decides, out of the blue, nowhere, he says, I'm going to produce and, and release their record. Yeah. And this is something that I think um, Laura's character finds, oh my God, he has a direction. And yeah. she jumps in yep. to support him and actually push him into she doing it. She sets up a record release party, everything, yeah, which freaks him out. Because why? Because he has to actually make a decision yeah, about something. Yeah, and he act, he's actually, well, as he says, he's always seen himself as a critic. I love how he says professional critic, because he's not a professional critic. No. Uh, but now he actually is a content creator, and he has to put something out there to be judged, and that scares the hell out of him. Yeah. Well, that's what happens when you're somebody who knows a lot about everything, but then actually has to produce the yeah, thing. Yeah. Good luck with that. Mm. But uh, So, yeah, I think both of us still yep. really like this film. Oh, yeah. Um, again, I wish there was a little. I wish there was a little bit more of the woman's perspective in here because I think we'd have understood what was going on a little better. But hey, you know that's fine. But mm. we have a new poll question that we would like to get your answer yes, on. We would. And Tell that, us what it is. That poll question is: besides musicals, what movie do you think has a killer soundtrack? Doesn't even have to be a good movie. Just has a great, amazing soundtrack. The one that you make you want to buy that album, although that's. Not exactly a thing. Stream. It makes you want to immediately stream and download that album. Whatever it is you kids do today, you telepathically implant the song in your cortex. What's that fish doing here? Yeah. Flop, 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 <laughs> Well, I have something for dinner. Um, but you can do that by emailing us directly at us at maxmikemovies.com, which of course suggests, and it's correct, that we have a website with lots of episodes and places for you to comment on those episodes, as well as make suggestions for other shows, other movies you'd like to watch, and that is Mac, 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 that is MaxMikeMovies.com, like I haven't said that 198 times, and you can find us on social media, as long as that social media is still currently trivia and, not trivia, Facebook, Facebook and Twitter, yes, because Elon, the Elon, I'm reading that as E-Lon, because why not? You are the Elon. You are human, I am Elon. There's a deeper. That is that is still available because he hasn't bought it yet. So, Facebook and Twitter, we are Max Mike Movies. If you would like to find us on your favorite podcast app, I'm sure you already have, but that would include Google, Apple, iHeartRadio, and Amazon Music, as well as probably a bunch of others. But you might ask, what movie are watching next week? Ooh, ooh, I want to ask, what movie are we watching next week? week <laughs> well you could hardly tell you hadn't rehearsed <laughs> so we are finishing up focus on john cusack <laughs> next week we are going towards the end of his career and i don't mean it's over but no, towards more the, recent more recent um so i mentioned in the trivia that uh, some of his latest films as 15 of them are straight to vod that's video on demand for those of you keeping track at home one of those is a film that I know almost nothing about. I believe it's a science fiction film. I think so. And it has John Cusack in it. Yeah, that's about it. And I think there's robots. Is there? Okay, cool. I think. I know nothing about this, but I. it was almost sort of a case of, what has he done lately? And go. Oh, that one. I finger landed on 
Singularity. So we will be watching John Cusack in Singularity and trying to wrap up this whole Cusack puzzle, this mm. mystery that is the Cusack. To be like the Cusack. <laughs> to live like the Cusack. <laughs> This has been a co-production of The Voice of Max and The Movie Wrench. Thank you.